We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. In the 2020 NBA Draft, the Charlotte Hornets select LaMelo Ball from Chino Hills, California. TJ, oh, oh. goodness, All right, what's going on? And welcome to another Buzz Beat. This is Richie, and today I'll be joined by James Herbert of CBSSports.com. I actually met James, if that's what you want to call it, through some Zoom media sessions with the Hornets. And I figured you must have been joining those sessions to do something related to LaMelo Ball, but you actually wrote an article on the team, which will actually be linked in the episode notes. You can actually go back and read his article I think it's back in March. It was titled Inside the Hornet's Nest. James, thanks for joining us, and, and how's it going? Everything's going great. Thank you for having me, and thanks for plugging that story. That was definitely like the most fun I had writing about basketball this season. And, and before we get into this, I want to ask, what, what's the meaning behind your Twitter handle, Outside the NBA? Oh, my God. Okay, so it is like a relic of the blog era. Like, I don't know. I guess I should check. I think I joined Twitter in like 2009, around there. I, I'll say it right on my bio. And like, that was just the name of my first blog. It was like, I, I could not call myself an NBA insider or anything <laughs> at that point. I'd never covered anything. And I, I don't know. It was supposed to be like, yeah, there's inside the NBA. Well, I'm outside the NBA. I'm just this like, I had some other, like some friends who wrote for my site too, but like, yeah, that's, that's, that's a, a relic of my very, very amateurish NBA thoughts from years ago that I hope nobody goes and tries to to look up. <laughs> well, I, I think everyone's going to do that now. Try try to find that. So I, I didn't know if, <laughs> I didn't know if it was random or if there was some kind of meaning behind it. So there, I guess there definitely is some some meaning and some stories behind that. So in your article that I mentioned, you mentioned the Hornets being part of this delete eight and having that long layoff between their last game of the 2020 season and then nine months later playing their first game of the 2021 season. I think a lot of people talk about the shortened offseason for the majority of the league that made the playoffs, but how difficult do you think it is for a team like Charlotte, who is, one, rebuilding, altering their offense, to not really have any kind of real organized basketball together for a long time. Because I think a lot of people would argue that the shortened off season was very hard for some of these teams 
that made it to the playoffs, had an extended run in the playoffs. But I think an argue, argument can also be made, you know, a team like Charlotte having these difficulties like that. Yeah, I think it's really tough. I think just all that time without playing basketball was hard on guys, you know, like honestly from like just a mental standpoint, like this is something that they had been done. I mean, just talking to some of the guys for that story, like Miles Bridges basically saying like he'd never gone more than like a week or two his entire life since he started playing basketball without playing basketball. And that was suddenly taken away. I mean, yeah, some guys could find gyms, it's sort of different people at different scenarios, depending on where they lived and what was happening. And I mean, some guys, if you have a max contract, maybe you have a gym like in your house. I, I'm not sure that any of the Hornets had that. So I think at the time, it was frankly kind of terrible for, for a lot of people on those delete eight teams. I do think though, that the mini camp Mm -hmm. that these teams were all able to hold like that then became super important because that was training camp this year was super, super short. It was rushed there. There were, there was all the testing involved. Some guys were arriving at slightly different times and they had to get cleared and it, it was just kind of a mess. And at least for those teams, they had something else. Now, if you go and look team by team at everybody who's there, there's some differential between the roster they had on the opening on opening night versus who was actually at the mini camp. But I think for the returning Hornets, that was a big deal for them. That was one of the things I talked to Jay Triano about just sort of in discussing the chemistry that the Hornets had this year that I think was very apparent to anyone that followed the team is like, he stressed how much the chemistry grew when they were there. He compared it to, you know, when he was like, coaching team Canada and playing for team Canada in international competition where there's nobody else around. It's just the team. It's just the staff and they're hanging out and it's not like everybody just retreats and does their own thing. Like there's a lot of kind of team bonding that happened there. And then also, Oh, by the way, you get um, these competitive, basically pickup sessions with these pros who are all just like basically starving to go out and play after all these months of not being able to do that. So I think, you know, from a player development standpoint, it was probably helpful just to like get around the the players again for the staff. But I, I think from a team building standpoint for at least this Hornets team, that was a big deal. And that at least helped to like give them something positive to latch, latch onto, because as you said, like that is not what you want. If you're developing a team if you're like trying to build an identity you have a whole bunch of young players like you don't want to just not see them for months and months and months on end and not get to test any of the stuff they're working about working on against nba competition yeah i mean you mentioned their offseason in market bubble and uh how that could be beneficial with the team but like you said it was also before the nba draft and free agency where they would yep. acquire two of their biggest assets and gordon hayward and Lamelo ball but you know, nonetheless, it was kind of like a consolation prize for them to at least have some kind of organized activities. And, and, you know, maybe it was just like a bonding experience and kind of keeping that chemistry going. And I think that was one of the biggest things that we saw this year with the Hornets was that chemistry and players being able to play with multiple lineups, multiple players. It felt like that was a, a strength of the Hornets. Now, do you remember if you had any preseason predictions or expectations of this team? Because I think many were predicting this team to be one of the worst in, in the East. Yeah, I thought their ceiling was kind of a play-in team, but I didn't know that they would get there. Like, I remember going on some podcasts and and writing, like, sort of recappy stuff where, like, no, I wasn't super positive about the Hornets, but I was, like, kind of playing devil's advocate just because, like, everybody was kind of trashing them. And I was sort of like, well, look, like this is what I think they're trying to do with the Hayward thing. Mm -hmm. And like, is it a lot of money to pay a guy who 
has like not been able to stay healthy since he signed in Boston. Like, yes. Like, is he on that same timeline as some of their younger guys? No, but this will organize the team on the court. This gives them another playmaker. I think he fits into like the style of basketball they want to play, blah, blah, blah. Like ideally they improve a lot. They can sneak into the playoffs, make the play in something like that. That was what I was thinking, like a best case scenario. And I think what happened was they exceeded everybody's expectations. Right. And if they were able to stay healthy, I think they would have solidly been a playoff team rather than a team that was just trying to sneak in by getting through the play in and, and whatever. And I think even if they had just been healthy in the play in, they probably would have ended up managing to get in the playoffs. And then who knows what happens from there. But I think like the version of the Hornets we saw when they were at their best Mm -hmm. was like, I had a scenario in my head that I thought was like realistically possible. They would be decent. And they were better than decent. Like they were a legit good team when they were healthy and like fully functional. Yeah. From, from a national perspective, I think they exceeded everyone's expectations. I think from, you know, maybe a Hornets fan perspective or people that cover the team locally, you know, there might be some internal bias. I predicted them to be 11th overall in the East, which would be just outside that kind of plan tournament. But yeah. like you mentioned, you know, when they were all healthy, they they were way above that. I could have probably assumed they'd be a top five, top six team. Maybe that's debatable. Uh, if they kind of kept their players all healthy, we'll really never know. I mean, we're not going to know that because they, they did not stay healthy. But, you know, this team just had so little room for error, right? Like the talent top to bottom wasn't great, but they did have a, you know, a good starting unit. And the players that did play, they were very impactful. From your point of view, from a positive note, I know this is a very wide open question. I'd love to know what what do you think uh, made this team play so well, especially when you know when all the players were healthy. I think they were more than the sum of their parts from the very beginning, and I think you got a lot of player development in the roster, and then you just had like a team wide sort of raising of the level that you got from basically because you had Gordon Hayward level the ball in the same off season, but it's like. It, it, it sounds simplistic to say that like you, you add like a franchise level talent and it's like, you know, he's not playing like a superstar now, but he has that potential, right. And LaMelo and, and somebody who can elevate others around him. And then you also have a guy in Hayward that his numbers are pretty similar on a permanent basis, like what he was doing in Utah. And I think he was sort of perfect for the team because he is the kind of guy that even back then, like, he was their all-star. He was their undisputed number one guy, but he was not just dominating the ball in every possession. He would allow other guys to make plays. And I, I think the fact that both LaMelo Ball and Gordon Hayward were playing at a high level individually, but no one seemed to care about whose team it was, like, that is why this worked. Like, I had no idea going into this season how it was going to, how things were going to play out with those guys joining Terry and Devonte, and oh by the way Malik Monk is going to find a way to have this like bounce back season as well like I I couldn't have really conceived of all of that happening at the same time the injuries probably had something to do with that but I think it all just kind of worked and then you know they got player development from Bridges they they got they they discovered some things throughout the year the 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 fully healthy starting lineup with Zeller at center, they were like, what, like plus eight ish in non-garbage time minutes, I think. And then they did really well 
Um, overall, when they had Bridges at four and Washington at five, and they beat beat up on a lot of second units that way. And I, I think it was just a matter of them kind of figuring out who they were. It was a little rocky for the first couple of weeks of the season. And then they started to strengthen some wins together and they just, they played with such confidence. They knew exactly how they had to play. And I, I think it's, having the main guys that know how to be a part of something bigger than themselves. And I think you have to credit Borrego and then the staff as well for what they were trying to instill. Well, that's a, that's a good segue to this next question. Uh, I think an underrated aspect of this team's success was how well Borrego connected with his players and just his even keel kind of demeanor. Do you have any overall thoughts on him as a coach from the conversations you've had with him or, or the players and, or maybe just what you've seen out from him on the court? He's so consistent and he's so positive. And I think that is so key for a young team. He, he is constantly preaching resilience, unselfishness, playing with the past, that kind of 0.5 mentality he took with him from San Antonio about like, you get the ball, you it, like, you can shoot past the dribble, but like do that quickly, put pressure on the defense. They are, this is not a team that, I mean, I live in Brooklyn. I'm like going to watch the nets later. And like, I actually shouldn't position it this way because the Nets have really tried to stress ball movement, like the cutting and all that stuff. They just killed the bucks with that the other day, but like in general, like if they are matchup hunting and just running ISOs, like the other team is in a compromised position and they can just be, you be doing just that the Hornets, they are not a team like that. They have a bunch of playmakers, but they're not necessarily just like, all right, you go get me a bucket. Yeah. So they, they've had this mentality that, that it predated LaMelo and Gordon Hayward. And those guys fit into that. And I, I think the fact that Borrego was preaching this all along, the fact that he was always trying to build guys up and make them play with confidence. And he wanted them to play freely, which, which I think is important for, for a young team. Like I, I just, I, I think that was a real source of just kind of steadiness for this team and allowed them to, you know, they had all these big comebacks. They had all sorts of clutch performance. They didn't play like a young team for most of the season. Things were a little bit different at the end, but for most <laughs> of the year, you know, like I just, I really thought that he had a lot to do with just kind of the overall character of the team. Yeah. I think that, you know, in his first couple of years, he had to transition from Kimball Walker led offense to something a little bit different. And even when Kimba Walker was gone, those first couple of years, they were still pick and roll heavy. Like last year, Devontae Graham was the lead guard, point guard, running a lot of pick and rolls as a ball handler. That changed this year. Like he was shifted off ball a whole lot more, obviously with the addition of LaMelo. And to your point about the .5 mentality, there was just a lot of quick decision making and you know passing and, and getting it from one side of the court to the other making the defense move. And I think that benefited a team that doesn't have a player, like you mentioned, that can go get you a basket if you need him to. There's not real. I mean, I guess Gordon Hayward, but other than that, it, there's not really that many players on this team that can go out and get you a bucket. So it is going to be derived on a lot of this team ball movement and Borrego hunted the right spots or the spots that he wanted to hunt on the court at the rim from behind the arc. That's always been, I feel like a positive of his and uh, his team yeah. definitely buys into that. With any yeah, guess, oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, I, I thought like the defensive philosophy and the offensive philosophy kind of like they they made sense together, right? Like they, he wanted to force turnovers yep. and play really aggressive defense and get in passing lanes and get deflections and all this stuff because he wanted to run. He wanted to play with pace. He wanted to play with energy. He wanted to take advantage of the fact he had a bunch of athletes. He had a bunch of guys that could do that. 
And uh, I thought that really kind of like established itself pretty quickly. I mean, this was not a great defensive team, but it was a fun defensive team to watch for me throughout the year, especially early on when they were playing so much zone. Yeah. But I mean, they, regardless of whether they're playing zone and man, they were playing like quite aggressive defense. There was a lot of ball pressure. Like there was a lot of sort of like, we want to make the other team uncomfortable and we want to cause turnovers. We want to run. We want to play fast. We, we do not want to get into this like grind it out slow game of like execution. And I think when they play games on their terms, they usually won and it helps to then also have a guy like Hayward that can be a safety valve that, you know, when you're playing random basketball, if the first action doesn't work, you can go make something happen. Yeah. But I think he enjoyed playing this, this up and down style too. Yeah. I think he knew that once when he got in the half court, uh, a lot was going to rely on Hayward or a lot was going to rely on, you know, trying to make the ball move from side to side, like I mentioned before, but like this team, I think prior to LaMelo's injury, and I have to, I have to look this up again, but I think prior to LaMelo's injury, they were number one in the NBA in terms of like points per possession in transition in terms of, yeah. you know, when that did happen, they, they did score at a very, very high rate. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And speaking of LaMelo, I think I've got to ask every guest that joins here, what were your thoughts on him as a rookie? And number two, do you think he'll win rookie of the year? Or do you think Anthony Edwards kind of, you know, scoring outburst in the last 25 to 30 games of the season might sway some people? Uh, I think he'll win it. I mean, personally, like I didn't get a ballot, but like when I did my like fake ballot, like I didn't, I had Halliburton second and Edwards oh. third. Was, I, I framed it a little bit differently, but no, I mean, I thought I, he was incredible. Like, I don't think anybody kind of could have predicted that he would translate his game quite this way. Like a lot of the concern, I mean, you know, they've probably been over the million times. Like people were concerned that he was going to need the ball constantly, that everything was going to have to go through him. He wasn't, he was just going to do nothing off of the ball. He was going to be the worst defender in the NBA. He was going to take a lot of bad shots, whether they're, deep pull-up threes for no reason or like forced contested floaters and traffic and, and all of this stuff and like just kind of be apathetic about like team basketball and all of that and it's just like he was the opposite of all of those things man like he, he was an awesome rebounder he was a fantastic passer he made everybody around him better he moved without the ball he didn't care about running it zillion pick and rolls he cleaned up his shot selection i thought and he still took some bad ones but it wasn't crazy and defensively like 
he, he wasn't amazing, but he had absolute positive attributes on that end. He, I don't think when he was bad, he was bad because of effort. Like he tried, he got a ton of deflections. He tried to like pester and annoy opposing guards. He's like fairly versatile. Cause he's just like, he's really big. And I think he was just kind of underrated and mislabeled in, in a whole bunch of ways. And the, the potential for him to improve some of those weaknesses that were correctly identified, which I think like those, there are some that exist, like, like, if he can iron out some of those, those like weaker points in his game, like he act like genuinely, I think can be a like superstar level player, like a franchise level player. Like the, the, the stats that he put up at his age, you can only really compare him to all stars and, and players that are better than all stars. I think I had those same hesitations heading into the draft because he was not number one on my board. Not that I'm some kind of draft aficionado, <laughs> but like, you know, the shot selection, his three point shot over in Australia was just not something that I could point to and be like, OK, this is something that's going to translate over to the NBA because he shot 25 percent over there. And that just kind of worried me. And before his injury, he was shooting at a pretty high clip from behind the arc. And that was one of the biggest surprises to me. And then on the defensive side of the court, like you just mentioned, he might not have been the best player, but he competed one. Number two, he had his length that allowed him to kind of catch up for those gaps and, and shoot the gaps yeah. and, and get steals and, and play into Borrego's transition offense. And the one thing that always surprises me with him is that like 15 foot floater. Like you, you see him yes. just kind of, you know, put it up and I'm just like, okay, this is not going in. And it actually went in more than I thought it would have. So I like you would have probably given LaMelo the nod for rookie of the year. Obviously there's a little bit of bias that comes my way, but I think I would have Anthony Edwards second and then Halliburton third. But one person I think that has benefited a lot from the exposure of LaMelo ball not a player, but play-by-play announcer Eric Collins. You mentioned him in your article, but what are your thoughts on his like play-by-play style? Is it too over the top for you, or do you like that from a team guy? I love it. I, like he's he's been my favorite analyst to watch this year. Like, I mean, or to listen to, I should say. It's just it's a, such a perfect marriage of announcer and team because like he was like this pre Lamelo. He Correct. will always be Correct. like this no matter who is on this roster. I want to make that clear. That's something he also wanted to make clear. And when I talked to him, and I, I had to kind of assure him, like, no, like I'm not trying to give Lamelo credit, like for for like what you do and who you are. Like that is uh, like a hundred thousand percent authentically him, and he is that guy. But to be able to be able to hear him call like the LaMelo to Bridges alley-oops and all of the different like fast breaks and all the different, like, by the way, all the different game winners and clutch shots that have been hit by various Hornets. Cause it seems like pretty much everybody in the starting lineup had like at least one moment this year where they made some crazy play at the end of the game or something close to a game winner. And like, it was, it was an absolute joy. And I I love that he got all the coverage that he did. He was a pleasure to talk to when, when I interviewed him and like, I mean, just, I don't know where he comes up with half the stuff. Like it's <laughs> it, it, like one thing is like the excitement level, like that's obvious, but also like just his, his phrases. And he, it seems like he's just making all this stuff up on the fly. Some of them he reuses, obviously like come diddly D is like, if you're hearing that something special has happened, but then other times I just feel like he's freestyling. And I, 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 I just, I don't know, man, like I understand some people want the like straight ahead, straight laced announcer, but like I dig that he, first of all, doesn't listen to any other announcers and has his own style and that like he is unafraid to show the world how much fun he's having at work. And, and to your point, like he, he has been this way 
since he has started. And I think with more people watching this team because of the fun style and LaMelo Ball and Miles Bridges, I think a lot of people are thinking that he's kind of putting it on just because they're having exciting plays and alley-oops and all that stuff. But that's, that's truly not the case. Eric Collins has been this way since day one. And I personally enjoy it. I know that some people might be turned off by it, especially if you don't listen to him on a nightly basis. But I do enjoy Eric Collins a ton. I would love to get him on the podcast. So the season is over for Charlotte. Obviously, the playoffs are still going on. And the Hornets will have to shift their fo- focus to the uh, the NBA draft, free agency. And I don't think they're going to get lucky again with the lottery. The lottery is going to be held on June 22nd. Let me get your opinion on this when it comes to draft philosophy. I think many people subscribe to the best player available theory. For a team like the Hornets, do you think they can be more selective in this year's draft? Or are they going to be a team that's just locked into drafting the best player available, even if it happens to be a point guard or even if it happens to be a small forward positions in which, you know, may not be high need right now? I am generally a best player available guy. I think if it's close, then need should be the tiebreaker. Right. I think just based on where the Hornets are, though, it's like they they don't have the number one pick. They don't they're not going to. I don't think they're going to be in a position where they will just they will be passing up somebody that is clearly like way better than the next guy. Like it's probably going to be picking between a bunch of guys in the same tier. And at that point, then I'm pretty okay with them going into the draft and saying like, we're probably not getting a point guard right? because <laughs> we probably don't need that when it comes to wings. Like, man, like, I don't think there's a single team in the NBA that I would look at and say they should not draft a wing because they have a really good one. Like get as many of those dudes as you possibly can. To me, the only times where really you're like thinking about positions as a like big deal is when you have like a clear ball dominant point guard type deal. And there's somebody else that fits that bill. Or if it's like a, a center type thing where I, I just think centers are not nearly as important as they used to be. And if you're not talking about a real transcendent superstar type, then you probably don't want to pick, use a, a lottery pick on a guy like that, unless like it's a real glaring need and you think you found the perfect guy. That That's kind of how I look at it from a philosophical standpoint. Like if there is somebody who like is technically a point guard, but, you think can play with LaMelo and can right. play with Terry and can play with, I mean, I don't know how much Devonte factor, like I don't know how much Devonte or Malik factors in right now. I don't like, we can get to that. But I, I think if you think the guy really fits how they want to play, sure. But if it's a close thing, I'm okay with a team like that being like, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to do something a little different. Yeah. That's the way I feel too. Like it, it's typically BPA, but if there are two players that are kind of like neck and neck, I'm going to probably go position based and, and, or, or someone that fits the scheme a little bit better. But to your point, if they're drafting at number 11, the tier there or the drop off between one player and the next might not be that great. So you're going to probably shift towards someone that kind of fits your roster right now. Now you mentioned, yeah. uh, Devante and, and Monk. Both of them are free agents, and I don't think they're both going to be back with the Hornets. Do you like if you were in Mitch Kupchak's shoes? Like, would you bring Devontae over Monk back? Monk over Devontae? Let them both walk? Do you have a preference? I mean, I think Devontae is the one I would probably try harder to keep. I think he'll probably get paid more though. So it's it's difficult. Like, this is a tough job. I I think you need to be thinking about role and fit. And frankly, like money. And if you can, if you make the calculation that you're 
money is better spent bringing Mac and Link Monk. And that is like an easier thing to figure out. Then you do that. I would, I would, I just, I feel like the organization should be quite, or is probably quite invested in Devante just because of sort of the story. And a lot of times when you have a homegrown guy like that, when you kind of plucked him out of obscurity and developed him, like that is where you can also get in trouble because front offices get wedded to those players and they end up overpaying them. So I'm a little bit cautious about the whole thing. Devante thinks he's a better player, but you're asking me a question that sort of depends on the market. And I don't know what kind of offer sheets are going to be out there for those players. So it's hard for me to confidently like make a prediction of what will happen. Right. I've had this debate with Brian and Spencer, my other two co-hosts, like throughout the course of the season. One week I'm saying Malik Monk, the next week I'm saying Devonte. You you think it might be easier to bring back to, or sorry, you might think it'd be easier to bring back Monk versus Devonte, but it feels like the front office and James Borrego has had like this little bit of a divide with Monk. They've always said that, or Mitch has said multiple occasions that Malik Monk is the most talented player on this roster, but. In his tenure in Charlotte, he has had this up and down minutes rotation with JB. And it just feels like, I don't know if JB doesn't trust Monk or JB doesn't feel like Monk fits perfectly within to what he wants to do. So I almost feel like Monk won't be coming back regardless if it's easier or not to bring him back. He does have a $16 million cap hold right now with the Hornets. So that, that makes things a little bit difficult if you don't renounce him to have that kind of tied up on your books. But yeah, to me, that to, is a good point. Yeah. Cause I was thinking more like easier as in, I think he will command a smaller contract, but if we're talking about cap holds yeah. and flexibility, yeah. then one easy thing they can do is say bye-bye. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, to me, to me, they're neck and neck. You, you could, you can make an argument for Devante. You can make an argument for Monk. They both offer something a little bit different. I kind of have a soft spot for Devante, but again, you can make the argument that Monk is a better, well-rounded player too. So it's it's really kind of personal preference. And moving into free agency, a kind of last off-season question here for you, James. Obviously, the most glaring need is the center position. Uh, two-part question. What, what did you make of Zeller and Biombo this year? And then number two, do you have any centers on your mind that would be a good fit for Charlotte? Yeah, I think I was not always super clear on... I was sometimes confused about what was happening with the center rotation, as I think a lot of people were. I got usually, like, if Biombo was starting and playing big minutes, it was because Borrego felt like they needed better defense and they weren't getting the stops they needed. Like, I, I basically understood the rationale. I think most of the time, if I was, if I was like, confused or if I was a little, like, maybe I disagree a little, it was probably because I thought Zeller should have been playing. And that is, like... I have some affection for Bismack Biombo. I, I live in Brooklyn. Now. I used to live in Toronto and I covered his best year of his career by far. And I don't know how much, like, I mean, I do know, like you would have dealt with him. He is a pleasure to talk to. He's a great guy. He's a, he's a, I think like based on everything that I, like everything people told me when I was reporting the Hornet story, like he's been absolutely incredible for that team's chemistry and like for LaMelo specifically. So I don't really have a bad thing to say about him from that perspective, but I just think like, there were times when this team would have these lulls offensively. And a lot of that, the time that was coinciding with when Biombo was getting big minutes and on the court. And it was just like, I know it doesn't really matter. Like it's not worse to like miss a decent look than it is to like 
have a would be dunk or layup kind of like go off his fingertips. Like you're not scoring either way, but it just, it felt like it felt like it was more than just two points that you were losing when those possessions happen. And when those possessions happened at the end of a close game or a big game later in the season, that, that was like a little bit frustrating for me. So that, that, that's sort of how I felt about the center rotation. I did like, I, I should say about Zeller, like, I understand the defensive concerns. I understand like he never became the like stretch guy that he was trying to be and all of that either. But I did like, we saw a little bit of growth. I think in terms of like his like high post passing, like saw some like, good, like high low stuff with him. They tried to use him like a little bit more as a playmaker this year, which I didn't really know if he totally had that in him. So I, I liked that deal is, but like clearly the, the Hornets would like, I think somebody who can like, be more of a threat with the ball in their hands in that position who can make plays out of the short roll, who can uh, stretch the floor a little bit without having to go small and put, put PJ there. And I mean, there's, I kind of have like a long list of, of bigs that are available and sort of like non bigs that can kind of functionally do the same thing. Right. Like, I mean, I live in Brooklyn, as I said, and like Bruce Brown, a restricted free agent, Blake Griffin and Jeff Green are not really centers, but they're all, free agents this this summer but yeah i mean the bigger names like i don't know if you can pry jared allen away from cleveland when you make a trade for a guy like that you probably intend to pay him whatever he kind of wants john collins is in a little bit more of a murky situation has been linked to charlotte forever but i mean he's a big part of a really good team that i mean hell might make the conference finals now so he, i don't know he what surprised me this playoffs james he has surprised me with his corner three shooting and you know mm-hmm. I, I didn't know that was a part of his game and you know, they always talk about his defense not being, you know, top tier, which is obviously what Hornets need to kind of kind of focus on this offseason is getting some players that have two way ability. But Jan Collins, yeah, he has, he has, but he's impressed me this off this offseason, this postseason, I should say. And I, I don't know if I would, you know, go after him per se, but he's kind of made me double, do a double take this offseason or this post. God, I keep saying offseason, this postseason. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, for the Hornets, it's the offseason. It's yes. all right. But I I think those guys would, like, fit. I think Rashawn Holmes would fit on any team, and there's like he's, like, the favorite of basically any, yeah. like, fan base who has, like, money to spend and needs, needs a five, I think, for good reason. There's And then, like, once you get past those guys, it's like, I don't know what to make of Zach Collins anymore, and he's a restricted free agent. I don't know what the hell the Blazers are going to do. And then if you, if you want to talk about like some veterans and dudes that can like just kind of step in and be productive and might not be like part of the core, like, you know, like Nerland is a free agent. Like yeah. you've got like Kelly Olenek who is like killing it in Houston at the end of the year and would give the Hornets exactly none of what they need defensively, but oh man, he would fit offensively in this system. You know, Tice is a free agent. Like you, like you could take a flyer on like a DJ Wilson or like a, if you, I don't know that you can pride Juan Toscano Anderson away from Steve Kerr's loving embrace, but I like him as a small ball five and he, he would make sense. But yeah, there, there's like, it, it depends where, what you are looking for. Are you looking for somebody like, are you renouncing everybody and you're going to spend your cap space on one guy? And this is going to be like the sort of final piece of the, of the rebuild. Then I I think we're talking about a very, very small list of guys. And it honestly might just be Jared Allen and John Collins that really fit that bill. And then beyond that, there's, you've got the, the Holmeses of the world and yeah. Zach Collins is kind of a question mark. And then other than that, we're sort of talking about veteran role players. 
Yeah, I, I like Holmes the best. I was actually kind of pushing for a trade for Holmes at the deadline for Charlotte, but mm-hmm. it probably made more sense, to, or, you know, it's smarter just to wait until free agency. He's a good two-way center. I think that would be just a perfect target for Charlotte, but he's obviously going to garner a lot of money, I would think. Nerlens Noel, you mentioned, he's a little bit more limited offensively, but he can still be a a roll and lob threat to me like he is somebody that the Hornets would need on the back end just being that rim protector that's something that the Hornets have lacked and I think that James Borrego this season at certain times they have outperformed on the defensive side of the court but I think the reason maybe James that they played zone defense was to kind of simulate you know a rim protector and pack the paint but once when you have a player like Nerlens Noel you know, you can get away from the zone and just use zone when you need it every so often. And then you also mentioned Daniel Tice. I think he's an underrated name. I really do. I think he's a scrappy player, good screen setter. In a way, he reminds me of Cody Zeller in a way. I'm sure fans would want something a little bit different than him and and Zeller. So they might be a little bit underwhelmed by that signing. But I, I actually think that would be a decent signing, just probably not my top preference. But I would not be upset if, if Tice was the was the pick there. I mean, we have seen Tice play a big starting role on a really good team before. He ran up into a buzzsaw and damn out of bio in last year's playoffs. But like other than that, like there weren't a ton of matchups that he struggled with. And there's a guy, he's really like he's like six eight. He's not like this big strong guy, but he like he just battle is really hard he sets monster screens he can space the floor a little bit he's not like a true stretch five that wants to take six seven threes a game but he can make them if you're daring him to he can make the mid-range shot and i i think he's just like a smart player he's mm-hmm. particularly a smart defensive player and a smart screener and can be a guy that like sops up minutes at a relatively low cost for a playoff team which is what the hornets intend to be so i think yeah like one other thing like with both both Tice and Noel, like I, I think Nerlens is like a little bit more mobile, but I mean Tice is more mobile than he looks. You can play pretty much any type of defense with those guys. Like right. if you want to like put Nerlens in a switch everything defense, you can absolutely do that. If you want him to play up at the level, you can do that. If you just want him sitting back in the paint and being your traditional rim protector and a drop coverage, which is like mostly what he's done with the Knicks. Like, I mean, we've seen him be very effective in that role too. And he gets a ton of deflection which, I and mean, Charlotte likes to do that. He, I, I think you've identified guys like, I mean, Holmes is kind of similar in that way. Right. And like Holmes, I think is just a, a better offensive player. It's funny. Like the Sixers used to have both of those guys and now they have developed into, you know, similar type of guys. But I think if you were kind of anticipating where they'd be at this point, you would think Nerlens would sort of be at the level where Holmes now is. I think he is more coveted and seen as the more like higher upside play than, than Nerlens. It's a little weird. Yeah, the Hornets can have up to like $27 million in cap, but that's that's if they renounce all their free agents and all that stuff. Yes. That just isn't very likely. It'll probably come in closer to about $20 million and then kind of work their way from there. So we're going to end with some rapid-fire questions. Most of them deal with the Charlotte Hornets, but a couple of them deal with the national level here. Don't think too hard about these. I, I promise I won't hold you to this okay number one okay first player you think of past or present when i mentioned the charlotte hornets is blank mugsy bugs okay number two first player you think of past or present when i mentioned the charlotte bobcats <laughs> gerald wallace oh okay oh. yeah that's probably i, I want to say i want to change it to byron mullins but it is literally gerald wallace but i i want my answer on the record to be byron mullins <laughs> All right, number three, true or false, Charlotte Hornets have the best color combo in the league. Yeah, true. 
And true or false, here's kind of like mm-hmm. a hot take. Phoenix Suns will make the NBA Finals. Whoa. Uh, false, because I actually picked the Nuggets in this year. Okay. And then number five, your 2021 NBA champion is blank. Brooklyn. Yeah, I think I lean that way too. <laughs> yeah. it's uh, if, they, if they can get it out of this Bucks series, I, I think they're going to win it all as well. So I, I don't know if you're are you a homer because you're in Brooklyn or you just you just feel that way. I mean, it'd be nice to walk to the games, the NBA Finals, but no, I, that's not why. Like, yeah, I just look the 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 odds just decrease significantly because I don't know if we're going to see James Harden, Harden play again. But I mean, if he's back and if they're themselves, like, I just don't know what you do with this team. Yeah. All right, guys, as we wrap here, I first want to let you guys know that Brian and Spencer will be releasing a pod later this week. We wanted to remind you, as always. We'd appreciate a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcast. If you submit one that is clever or one that we'd really enjoy, we will read it on an upcoming episode. Also, the CBS Sports article from James that we referenced will also be in the notes. James, as we sign off here, I'll give you the floor to promote you on your social media and anything you've got going on in the future. Well, as we discussed earlier, <laughs> outside the NBA on Twitter, I should honestly change that. I've been meaning to forever and all my stories go up in the NBA section, cbsports.com. And yeah, I mean, if you miss the Hornets piece, please, please read that. You don't have to read anything else. We read that. I'll, I'll be thrilled. <laughs> Are you a big college prospect guy? Do you get into the draft at all? Not as much as I used to. Yeah. But around draft time, I get really into it. I just, it, it's hard for me to watch as much like NCAA as I did when I was younger. Yeah. I'm going to have to start doing that, start diving into some college prospect research. So if any of our listeners have any uh, prospects that are kind of in that Hornets range around 11, please send them to me on Twitter. I will uh, talk to you guys later. For James, I am Richie. We will see you guys next time. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style. All for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.